This morning I just want to speak to you about when being all things to all people is justified. When being all things to all people is justified. Now one of the criticisms leveled against politicians, are there any here? <laughs> Better watch myself. Oh, there is one. Anyways. One of the criticisms leveled against politicians is their propensity, oh, I should, that's an overstatement, their inclination, let's say, to speak out of both sides of their mouths. Now, let's, let's, let's pick on Mitt Romney, for instance. It's always good to pick on the Americans. Uh, here's a picture of Mitt. He's reading from his Mitt Romney issue positions. Uh, and it says, stop me when you've heard something you like. Of course, not all politicians, like our favorite one here, uh, are not the same, and not all guilty of being disingenuous. But it is clear that it's a widely held position that people say that they speak out of both sides of their mouths. Well, this morning you would have every reason to say, Tim, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. This is an excerpt that I wrote, sent over to Dale, last Sunday. And it's just a little intro that we put on our website that introduces what the sermon is about. Let me read. As we follow the narrative of Acts, we're beginning to see the implication of Christ's introduction of a new covenant. Last week, our focus was on how Christ's work of atonement rendered the sacrificial system of the law obsolete. You know, all that stuff about sacrificing animals and all that. This week, and, and this actually was last week now, this week we see that the purification rites of the law became non-binding and ultimately symbolic when Christ performed the greatest purification rite of and for all time by washing us in his blood. All right, so that's what we've been talking about, right? That Christ's act on the cross brought to the end, uh, brought the end to the sacrificial system that the Jewish people uh, were um, used to. And also last week we talked about the purification rites, you know, the, the clean and unclean food, and when you got a disease, what you had to do, go see the priest, and all of those things, those purification rites, also became obsolete. So, that's Acts 10. Let's back fast forward to Acts 21. And this is where you're going to say, Tim, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. When we arrived at Jerusalem, that's Luke writing, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They'll certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses 
so that they will have their heads or can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. You see the issue I have? In Acts 10, which I just preached about last week, I said that the purification rites were obsolete. And yet when Paul comes to Jerusalem with his friends, they say, all kinds of Jews are coming to Jesus. Isn't it great? And Paul would have been super excited about that. And they said, look it, we got a problem here. We want you to perform a purification rite with these four brothers. Actually, we want you to pay the tab. Right? And so we have a problem. We want you to engage in and finance a purification rite so that all of these Jews won't think ill of you because they think that you are uh, encouraging people to leave the law of Moses. So what's the deal, <laughs> Tim? One Sunday you're saying the purification rites are obsolete. The next Sunday we're reading about Paul engaged in a purification rite. And being encouraged by the leaders of the Church of Christ to do so. What's the deal, indeed? Well, clearly, this is a very interesting time in the church. It's a time of transition uh, from uh, its Jewish roots into becoming a church that is for all people, from all walks of life, from all races. So that said, but it's not really quite enough of an explanation. What do we make of Paul's seeming contradictory actions? Why would he not simply refuse to engage in and endorse a rite of purification that God had declared as non-binding? Is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? with his confusing actions. Well, let's just read about Paul's approach to issues like this. In 1 Corinthians 9, he gives us sort of a summary that gives us insight to why he did what he did. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, although I, I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. 
To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. And then he puts a clarification. Uh, Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Interesting, right? So to the Jews who have become Christians and are just letting go of, of their Judaism, he engages in a purification rite. To the Gentiles, who have no knowledge and have no experience or history with the law, he engages in things that his Jewish parents would frown upon. (laughs) Because he wants to win them over. I think that we need to look at that statement and say, is it troubling or is it wise? Is it troubling? Is it, is it the same as Mitt Romney kind of like saying one thing and then saying another thing out the other side of his mouth? Or is there wisdom to it that we can get a hold of and apply to our own lives? Well, I would suggest to you that there's wisdom in it. There's godly wisdom in it. And I don't feel the same way about that as I do to people that speak out of both sides of their mouths. Let's take a look at a different issue and how Paul responded to that issue. And it had to do with unclean food. Now remember the unclean stuff, the clean and the unclean. And Do you remember Peter's vision we talked about where last week where that, that sheep came down and had all kinds of animals and God said to, to eat of those animals? And some of those animals were clean and food that he would normally have eaten, but some were unclean. And Peter said, oh no, I'm a good Jewish boy, I can't eat that stuff. And I never have and I never will eat that stuff. Because it's unclean. And God said, don't make anything unclean, or don't presume anything is unclean that I have made clean. And so we see that God had declared it clean. So let's move to this other practical example from 1 Corinthians 10. And it has to do with unclean food. Paul is dealing with the church in Corinth. And... um, He's dealing around an issue so so very practical. Unclean food. Now the unclean food in this case was food that had been sacrificed uh, during the pagan rituals in the pagan temples. And so meat would be presented to the um, false god and then because it was perfectly good meat it would be sold in the market. But it was known as food that had been offered to the idols, right? And so there was a big question, should Christians eat this meat that has been involved in, has been a part of pagan ritual? Particularly it's an issue because 
<laughs> the church is made up of people that used to use that meat as idol worship. And so it brings to mind, brings to their mind, you know, <laughs> idolatry, right? So the question is, should we be touching this stuff or not? Oh, by the way, it was probably cheaper meat. <laughs> Money talks, right? So here they are, grappling with this issue. This is what Paul writes. Now first, he, he takes the, the, uh, the angle of being the devil's advocate. All right? or, or, or he takes the position of, of, of somebody who is, is saying, I'm a Christian and I am free to do what I want to do. So, he says, quoting someone being the devil's advocate, I have the right to do anything, you say. And then his response is, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You know, <laughs> outside the context in which it is, you go to the market, you buy meat, it's just like any other meat. And as a Christian, just because it was sacrificed to an idol at some point means nothing, because we know idols are nothing. Right? And I'm going to get a bargain on the meat. So, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Now listen to this. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, well, first of all, Jews would not have even gone to the meal because they wouldn't even enter the, the houses of non-Jews. But anyways, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. The meat, the fact that it was offered to an idol, you know, if, if you're not aware of that, you know, and you eat it, you know, there's no bad thing. It's going to, God's not going to strike you down with lightning or anything like that. But if someone says to you this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? Do you ever, you ever have that reaction, right? You feel compelled to refrain from something because you know that there, it means something to somebody else. And you're like, but why is my freedom being constrained by that guy? Just because they're narrow-minded. Just because they're you know, legalistic. Why do I have to have my freedom? Wow. What's that all about? Where's that attitude? Is that the attitude of Christ? <laughs> So, this, if they say it's been offered to an idol, then don't eat it. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I've even given thanks to God for? I mean, I'm being a good guy. I'm thanking God for this stuff. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. There it is again. Do you hear how many times he says that? For the sake of the gospel, so that people will be saved. So Paul means, or makes the point, that Christians are not bound by dietary laws. Because that's just superficial stuff. And our status with God is not jeopardized by eating food that had been offered to an idol. But Christians are bound, and this is the point, Christians are bound by the greater law. I'll call them the laws of Christ. And that is to love your brother and to love God. That's binding. That's something you can't allow your freedom to trample all over. You can't step on it. So the compass that is to guide Christians, Paul is saying, is this meat issue is a non-issue as far as your relationship with God. But do what is beneficial for the other, which is always the Christ way. Do that which is beneficial for the other. You see, just as God in Christ introduced the new covenant, he moved away from religious practices that, that, that required us to obey a, a, an external list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. He moved us from that into an internal, spirit-guided practice that responds according to the law of Christ, to the law of love. Now, this practice and this approach, this new covenant was foretold by the prophets. And, and you'll hear this passage over and over again, and this is what it's getting at. That the new covenant is not like the old in that the old was a behavioral model. This is a spiritual internal approach to our faith. And so, Jeremiah, one of the prophets of old, said this, this is the covenant I'm going to make with people of Israel. <laughs> quoting God, not, not Jeremiah, quoting God. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. You see how having the law written on your heart is not a list of do's and don'ts, but it is a compass that helps me guide through situations. And that compass is always on true north, which is the laws of Christ, to love God and man. And so it is always true to that guiding principle. So let's return to Acts 21. The next day, 
Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. He was being like a really devout Jew at this point, being very Jewish in obeying the rites of purification. You know, Paul would have been thrilled to hear about the Jewish conversions. Now, these com uh, converts were still practicing some parts of the law, which he determined weren't counterproductive. It wasn't like they were sort of saying, oh, good, we're not under the law. Let's go kill people. Let's commit adultery. Let's steal. Let's, you know. No, that's not what we're talking about here. So he said that he determined, using that compass, right, true north, the laws of Christ, the law of love, he determined that what they were doing wasn't counterproductive, wasn't sinful, even though he knew, because we, we've seen, we've looked into his head, we know what he, how he thinks, even though he knew that he nor these four other guys were bound to do what they're about to do. And this was good money thrown after bad, because he didn't need to spend this money. Or did he? But he wanted to obey the law of love. And so he was a Jew to the Jews. Now, no Christians today practice purification rites that I'm aware of, though there's probably some crazy people out there. <laughs> probably doing it. We don't shave our heads and we don't present ourselves to the priest. However, I've thought about this. It could be good cottage industry for me. Make a little extra cash. I can check you off and say, ah, you're good. We don't do that. And this speaks to the fact that those rituals are non-binding. And, and, I mean, we don't do it anymore because it's not required and it, it's, it's old and it's, it's past. There are, however, what I would call disputable issues amongst us, even today, within the church. That, that, are, that are not clear issues like, you know, the Ten Commandments. But, but other disputable issues that require us to really pay attention to that compass. What, what is that which is best for the other in this situation? If I exercise my freedom as a Christian, am I in some way leading another astray? So there are disputable issues. Issues that require us to consult the compass and be willing to be led by the Spirit to know how to respond. And so it would be antithetical, contradictory for me to stand up here and say, this means you should do this and you shouldn't do that. That's not how it works. It's all personal. It's all situational. It all depends on how the Spirit is leading. It's all contextual. 
But our compass is always to be to follow the laws of Christ. So let me just give you one example. Because I want you to, you know, I think it's being irresponsible of me not to give a, an example of what I'm talking about. For instance, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are recovering alcoholics. Right? And you know what? I'm free to drink wine or beer. <laughs> like, that's a freedom I have. I mean, I'm not getting drunk and there's prohibition. That's prohibited. But I, I mean, I'm free to drink that stuff if I'm not getting drunk. And so if I had them over to my house and I'm offering beer or alcohol to them, I'm exercising my freedom at their expense. Because that's a temptation for them. Do you get what I'm saying, Ed? The compass in my heart has to say, Tim, I know that you'd really like a white wine with this meat. I hate wine, but I'm just, for example. You know? You'd really like a wine with this. And you're free to do it because you're a Christian and you're not bound to that. But, is it right? Is it constructive? Is it helpful? Does it follow the law of love? That's how I've got to think. And so, I wouldn't offer it even though I knew that it would be something that I'm free to do. So that's just a practice, you know, it's just one example. And like I said, it'd be really strange for me and totally contradictory to everything I've said to start saying, you know, and so with the issue of, uh, you know, clothing, <laughs> these are the rules. Well, that's kind of count counterproductive, right? It's, it contradicts what I just said. And so we need to use that compass that God has given us which is the Holy Spirit in us, helping us to do that which the law of love requires. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Paul, who didn't exercise his freedom, even though he could have. Who uh, could have made a big deal out of uh, not engaging in this purification right. But he did it because... He wanted to be an encouragement to that church in Jerusalem. And he wanted to obey the law of love. The law of Christ. Help us to be so guided that in everything that we do, we consult the compass. And we do that which is beneficial for the other. And even, as Paul has said, so that many would come to Christ. Amen. Um.